things on each side. Um, you have A and then A and then B and then B and then in the middle you have C. Okay, and so you have the sign of Jonah on each side and then you have the kingdom of heaven, its parables and its power. And then right in the heart of that is the text that we're going to read right now. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Matthew 13, beginning at verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Miriam? And aren't his brothers Jacob and Joseph and Simeon and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? (laughs) Do you know that? Jesus had sisters. And where did this man get all these things? And here's the main verse for this morning. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And for lack of time, and because we're not going to look at this, the next chunk is obviously chapter 14. It's the story of John. Herod killing John. Okay? Uh, This is God's word, though. You can be seated. So I want us to think about this. What's at the center of Matthew's gospel? You have the rejection of Jesus. Then you have the rejection of John. You, you, you take these two things together and you have this total rejection of the kingdom. Because as we're learning now, the kingdom suffers. It suffers violence. And I think we've seen now just this building hatred. The Pharisees hate Jesus. The Herodians hate Jesus. The red states hate Jesus. The blue states hate Jesus. In fact, they're united together in their hatred for Jesus. In our text today, Jesus goes to his hometown, which is Nazareth, and I don't know what you think about Nazareth. Please don't think of Nazareth as kind of this backwoods, redneck village. That is not Nazareth. Yes, it is small. Yes, it is understated. Yes, it is a Jewish town. But it's located uh, right where one of the main highways runs through the Galilee, which connects the whole world. So culture is flowing past Nazareth all the time. And next to it also walking distance is a town called Sepphoris, which is Herod's capital, which is a Roman palace of that day. So it's small. It's understated. It's Jesus' home. So Jesus returns home. I want us to envision this to the people that he grew up with. His family is there. His boyhood friends are there. His aunts and uncles might be there. And so he shows up at their synagogue. And look at verse 4. It says, coming to, to his hometown. Just imagine this. Jesus is back in town. He's the preacher for that day. And it says, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And what does it say next? They're amazed at him. They were wowed by him. But just a couple of verses later, in verse 57, 
it says, and they took offense at him. And I want us to know, because when we read this account in Luke's gospel, them taking offense at Jesus, it's not that they just dislike him or disagreed with the things that Jesus said. This is his hometown, his family, his friends, and they want to take him to a cliff and kill him. He offends them. Because here's the deal about Jesus. I want us to know this. He offends even his family. He offends the little people in the country. He offends the big shots in the big city. He offends friends. He offends enemies. He offends Jews. He offends Romans. He offends religious people. He offends irreligious people. Jesus offends Everyone. Know that. Read the Gospels. The world hates him. I want us to know this morning, the real Jesus, he will always offend. Always. And if you're not offended by him in any way, I'm going to tell you something. You haven't seen him for who he is. He offends. And I'll tell you what we want today. Oh, we just, we so badly want this inoffensive Jesus. We want this nice Jesus. We want this politically correct Jesus. We, we want a Jesus who just nicely fits into our life, who just so nicely fits into our culture, who, who so nicely fits into our worldview and our way of life. And here's the deal. You and I feel like we need to help him out because he doesn't always fit so nicely into that. And so what we do then with Jesus is we kind of perform this surgery on him and we, 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 we take away all those aspects of him that are offensive to us, that are offensive to our life, that are offensive to our surroundings and to the spirit of our age. And I'm going to tell you what we've done to Jesus today. And this is just a general statement. We have turned Jesus into Mr. Rogers. We have. And, and I'm not trying to uh, say anything bad or good about Mr. Rogers, but does Mr. Rogers have punch? Is he going to change a person's life? Does he have the power to change the world? Don't do it to him. Let him offend. Let him offend you. Now, Here's what we have to ask when we read something like this. At least this is what I want to know. Why, why is Jesus offensive? What is it about him that's so offensive? Have you ever thought about that? Let's go to Nazareth. Let me ask you this question. What lies between verses 54 and verse 57? If you go to Luke's account, you know that there's a lot that happens between their being wowed by him and then their wanting to throw him off a cliff. But what Matthew wants us to see is this. 
Isn't this Yeshua ben Yosef? Isn't this Jesus, son of Joseph? Isn't this his mother Mary and his brothers Jacob and Joseph and Simeon and Judah? It's like they're saying, wait a second. I babysat this kid. I changed his diaper. I taught him how to fish. I went to synagogue school with him. He and his dad, they built a house. And here's what I think is happening. I think it's starting to dawn on him that Jesus is just a pretty ordinary person. And I think it's unpardonable to them that Jesus would be just like them. Of course, Isaiah 53 says this about Jesus. It says nothing in his appearance uh, that we should be attracted to him or, or, or nothing in him that we should even desire him. I mean, this is at the heart of the gospel, that the God of the universe who made all things, who is all glorious, he gave up his glory and he became ordinary. Heaven's son became the carpenter's son. In fact, have you ever stopped to think about this? That Jesus spent 30 years or so of his life in some small, obscure village living a very ordinary life. He wasn't a celebrity. I mean, he wasn't the Herod that you read about in the next chapter. I mean, Herod grew up in a palace. Herod, as a youth, was sent to Rome, as the history books teach us. And there he studied with the elites, even with future emperors. Now, don't take this the wrong way. But Jesus was just, he was just Jesus. He was just the son of a carpenter. Day after day, month after month, year after year, for 30 years, he lived a less than ordinary life. And I don't know how you, how, 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 what that does to you. I don't think we like to even think about that that much because I think there is something offensive in that. But what... What we need to see about Jesus is the same thing that we need to see about the gospel, which is the same thing that we need to see about God because they're all together. That Jesus' greatness is in his smallness and that his power, his power is most demonstrated in his weakness. Isn't this God? I mean, isn't this so God's way? I mean, as Neil said last week, the kingdom of heaven is, it, it, it's like this itty-bitty mustard seed. I mean, it, it, it's for the small. It's unleashed through the small. And see, I want to be part of a church that sees this. That embraces this because we live in a culture where it's all about the show. It's all about the celebrity. It's all about the extraordinary It's not God's way. It is a long obedience, my friends, in the same direction. And if you're looking for something extraordinary, if you're looking for celebrityism, you're at the wrong church. Take discipleship. Where's the big show in that? 
Where's the celebrity in that? You know what? Discipleship is hard work. Discipleship gets no high fives. Discipleship is about you pouring your life into a few people. And that's what Jesus did. And that's how he changed the world. I'm off my soapbox. Okay. Now, here's something that we need to see. This word for offense. I mean, this is a theologically rich word. It's, it, it's significant because it's found all over the Bible. In fact, it's repeatedly used in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew takes this word and he places it, places it right in the center of his gospel. Does anybody know what this word offense is in the original language? Beautiful. You're going to learn something. It's the word scandalizo. And it comes from the root word scandalon. And so already I think you have an idea of what it means. It's where we get our word scandal. It's where we get our word scandalized. Here's the deal. People are scandalized by Jesus. Because what scandalizo literally means, it means to stumble or to fall. That's scandalizo. A scandalon then is the obstacle or the rock that causes the stumbling. Now remember to the Jews that the life of faith is all about walking the path. It's about finding God's path and it's about walking it. So this word scandalon I think fits nicely into this picture because scandalon then is that big rock along one's path that causes one to scandalizo, to slip, to fall, to stumble. I'm telling you what, anyone who's walked in that part of the world <laughs> knows there are no flat paths. I mean, there are scandalons everywhere calling, causing uh, scandalizo, calling people to stumble and to fall. And see, Jesus uses this word all the time. Does anybody else know other places where this word is used? Come on, we, we can feel it, right? Causes us to stumble, scandalizo. If your eye scandalizo causes you to stumble, what? Gouge it out. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot scandalizo causing you to stumble, what do you do? Cut it off. Or if anyone scandalizos one of these little ones causes one of these children to stumble, um, it'd be better to take that millstone over there and wrap it around his head and throw him into that sea. <laughs> Not Mr. Rogers, is he? So in, in our text, though, Jesus uses this word. I'm sorry, or Matthew uses this word to say, Jesus is what? He's the scandal on. He's the rock. It has punch. Maybe it's the rock that is God in, a, in a Genesis 49, the, the, the rock of Israel, the, the, the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands in, in, in uh, Daniel 2. Um, but better yet, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 8, verse 14. And bear with me, because I didn't mark that this morning, which I should have. But I was always so fast at that sword, sword drill game. <laughs> All right, uh, Matthew, or Isaiah 8, verse 14 it says, he will be a holy place, a temple. 
For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. And many of them will stumble and they will fall and be broken and they will be snared and captured. He's scandalon. This rock causes people to stumble. Now, on the surface, when you look at this text, I think they, they, they stumble because Jesus is failing to meet their expectations. In fact, if we go back just a couple of chapters before to, to John the Baptist, I mean, remember that whole story. Jesus didn't meet John the Baptist's expectations. In fact, I think it was even more personal for John because John sends his little delegation from the prison in which he's in and he, he, he asks them to ask Jesus, are you the coming one? Now, where does the coming one come from? That's a messianic title that comes from Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Do you know what the next verse is? And I will set the prisoner free. So I think when Jesus answers this question, I almost see him crying. He says, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. In fact, all these clauses come right out of Isaiah 35, Isaiah 42, and Isaiah 61, which describe the coming kingdom. Yet there's one clause that is strangely missing from Jesus' response, which is what? The prisoner will go free. You're not getting out of prison, John. In fact, when you read our text further into Matthew 14, he doesn't. And you could look at John's life and say, wow, the end of John's life, is, it, it's, it's tragic. And then all it does is it, it just foreshadows what is to come for Jesus. And see, then Jesus caps this all off with, he says, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. There's that word again, scandalizo. In other words, Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who, because of me, doesn't stumble. He doesn't fall away. Jesus says that person is blessed. And remember, blessed isn't just a nicety here, but blessed is the word that Jesus attaches to those who belong to his kingdom. Blessed is the person who does not stumble as a result of me. But see, I think the offense of Jesus, though, it's deeper than just misplaced expectations. There is a reason under all reasons for why people of all times, all cultures, all backgrounds take offense at Jesus. Why they reject him. Why they are repelled by him. Why they hate him. Why they stumble over him. And I'll tell you what, no one gives a better explanation for this than Jesus himself. And I have to fast forward to Matthew 21, because Jesus does this through a parable. And you can go there. It's the parable that he tells just days before his execution. It's the parable of the vineyard. In fact, to me, this parable is the John 3.16 of all the parables. Because if you know what this parable is about, it's about a landowner who plants a vineyard. Now, a vineyard in that world is called what? Does anybody know? A gone. It's a garden. 
fact, they still exist all over the terraced hillsides of Israel. So as Jesus tells this parable, he says this landowner, he, he plants this gun, he plants this garden, and then he turns this garden over to some tenant farmers. Then he goes on a journey. When it comes time for the harvest, he sends some servants to the tenant farmers to collect his profits. But when the tenant farmers see these servants, what do they do? They beat them, they stone them, and they kill them. The landowner then says, okay, I'll send another delegation of servants. They do then the same thing to this group as well. Now remember, everything Jesus teaches is rooted in the Old Testament. Who is the landowner? God. And that's what God does. When God creates the world, he plants a garden. And see, the garden is the metaphor for the kingdom of heaven. This is the way that God brings beauty out of ashes. How he brings shalom to chaos is he plants a garden. You can read about this in Genesis 2 verse 8. And then Genesis 2 verse 15. It says in Genesis 2.18 that God planted a garden east in Eden. Genesis 2.15, he placed Adam and Eve in that garden. He said, I want you to rule this and I want you to subdue it. In fact, it's as if God is saying to Adam and Eve, he's saying, here's my creation. I want you to rule it. I want you to subdue it. I want you to explore it. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to enjoy it. All that I have made, I'm entrusting it to you. You are my garden and you are called to make the whole world a garden. See, here's the deal, and we need to hear this. With all this status and all this privilege came one stipulation. Adam and Eve, you're not the owner. I am the owner. You're the tenants. Which means you are to care for my garden, not your way but according to my words. And you're to do it for my profit, for my glory. And we know what Adam and Eve do with this. I mean, they fail, and their failure is in this. They refuse to be tenants. They insisted, they insisted on being owners. And as a result, we know the story, Adam and Eve became disconnected from God, they got kicked out of the garden, and the world fell back into chaos. And that explains our world, doesn't it? But see, it doesn't stop here. Because God doesn't give up on the world. God plants another garden. He clears some land, as it says in Psalm 80. And he takes a people for himself. And he plants them, as it's described in Isaiah 5. And in this land flowing with milk and honey, God calls them the garden of his delight. And to bring that garden to the whole world. And see, with this simple parable, Jesus just explained their whole story. Because the tenants are God's people, namely Israel's leadership. And they refuse to be tenants. They refuse to tend to God's vineyard according to God's word and for God's glory. They insist on being owners and not tenants. And I'm going to tell you something. This is the problem in the human heart that goes all the way back to Eden. The nature of the human heart 
is to insist on being owners and not tenants. This is my life. This is my body. This is my mind. These are my talents. This is my money. These are my kids. These are my possessions. These are my rights. Mine, mine, mine. And why are they mine? Because I own them. And see, all of us hate this idea of being owned by anyone or anything. We hate the idea, at least I do, of being under authority. Even if the authority is a loving father. And see, deep down though, I think we all know that we're still just tenants, but we want to believe that we're owners because owners get to call the shots. Owners get to live as they please. Owners get to live by their word and they get to keep the profits. If you want to know why people are taking offense at Jesus, it's right here. We hate God. We hate him. And the reason we hate God is we want to be in charge. We want to be in charge of our lives. But Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God is the owner of everything because he is the creator. It all belongs to him, including you. And Romans 8 verse 7 says that there's something repressed deep within all of us. It's this hostility towards God. In fact, that word in the Greek is the word extra, which means enmity. And enmity is this intense hatred. We hate God for being the owner. We refuse to be tenants. We insist on being owners. And I want you to know there are two ways you can insist on being an owner. And I want you to hear this. There are two ways that you can insist on being in control of your life. You can either do that by being bad, or you can do that by being really good. See, through rebelliousness towards God, I can just insist that this is my life, that this is my body, that this is my mind, that these are my talents, because I want to call the shots. I want to be the one who controls my life. I mean, it's Alice Huxley, I think, said it so well. He said, I didn't want to believe in God. Not that I didn't believe in God, but I didn't want to believe in God because if I believed in God, I wouldn't be able to sleep with whoever I want. But see, we can also insist on on being owners, not just by being rebellious towards God, but by being really good religious people. Because there are a lot of people who think that they can control their life by controlling God. And the way they control God is by being really good. Because they use their goodness as leverage against God. They just kind of think, God, because I do all these things. I don't owe you rent now, you owe me rent. And see, that's a tenant insisting on being an owner. So where are you right now? Honestly, are you living your life as a tenant? 
where you understand all that you are and all that you have is a gift from God. And that you are on this earth to steward those gifts, to steward your time, to steward your mind, to steward your body according to his word and for his glory. Let me start with your mind. Do you think your mind is yours? Do you think that you can just think or believe whatever you want? What about your body? Your sexuality? Do you just think that you can use your body however damn well you please? And I said damn because I'm telling you, a lot of the things we're doing with our sexuality today, they're damnable. They are. Or what about your talents? What about your gifts that are so unique to you that God invested in you? Your possessions, your money. Whose are they? Do you just sit there and say, they're mine, I own them. Who are you using them for? Who's taking the credit? And see, over and over again, God is, he's going to send messengers. And that's the whole point of Jesus' parable, that God in his grace, he just keeps coming at us. He, he repeatedly sends messengers to us to tell us, to remind us, you're not the owner, you're just the tenant. He sent his prophets. He sends a parent. He sends friends. He sends mentors. Hopefully he sends a preacher. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to tell you this in my own heart. You know what else he sends? Sometimes he just sends his providence. Those difficult circumstances. That intense desert. That, that painful trial. You see, you right now might be sitting there and think that you've been able to maintain this illusion of, uh, of control in your life, but I'll tell you right now, just wait. Just wait. Because I don't care how hard you try to control your life. I don't care how hard you say, I'm going to do it my way. Life circumstances will always show you that you are not in control of your life. You're not in charge. We're just tenants. And can I ask right now, what are you doing with the messengers that, that God is sending in your life? I mean, look at the parable. Jesus says he's tenant farmers in Jesus' parable. I mean, look how hostile they are. They beat, they stone, they kill anyone or anything that reminds them that they're not owners. What about you? This is why we want Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers lets us believe we're owners. What does God do about this? What should God do about this? I mean, think about what God could do. I mean, he, he could send down fire. He could send the worst kind of plagues. He could send legions upon legions of angels. Instead, 
He sends his son. What? You're crazy. Look what they did. Your son? Why in the world would God send his son? Why would he become this vulnerable? I mean, it almost seems reckless that he would risk his son's life. And I'll tell you why God sends his son. Because God, whether you think this or not about God, he's not a boss, he's not a businessman, but God is a loving father. And he's not just looking out for his property and for the prophets. He's looking for a relationship. That's why Jesus in the parable says, they will respect my son because when they see how much I'm willing to risk and how far I'm willing to go and when they see how vulnerable I'm willing to become, they're going to want to reconcile. See, God doesn't want the prophets. He wants us. He empties his heart of, of his greatest treasure. He sends his son for God so loved the world that he sent his son. You know why? Because this is how the God of the universe is dealing with the enmity, with the rejection, with our foolish insistence on being owners. Because Jesus says at the end of this parable, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's quoting now from Psalm 118. And we know from the parable what happens when the son shows up. He's rejected and he's killed. But listen. Yes, this is at the heart of Matthew's gospel in our text today. Here is Jesus being rejected and they want to kill him because this is what is at the heart of the gospel. It's hatred that kills Jesus, but it's in the killing that the hatred is killed. Did you hear that? Because that's the gospel. Listen to how Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verse 16. He says, On the cross, God puts to death the enmity. That's what God does on the cross. And look at the cross. I mean, what's on the cross? Christ being killed. See, the God of the universe, he he slays the enmity by being slain. He crushes the hostility by being crushed. That's how far God will go to make us his friends, to make things right, to reconcile us. He made Jesus the enmity. He treated Jesus on the cross as the enemies that we are. See that. Because that's the scandal on. That's the stone of stumbling. 
Look at how Jesus puts this. He puts these two stones together because these stones run throughout the Old Testament. The one is the Isaiah 8:14, the stone of stumbling, and the other is the Isaiah 28, verse 16, the, the, the precious stone that I lay in Zion. And then you have the uh, Psalm 118:2, the stone that is rejected. And see, Jesus connects the stone of stumbling with uh, the, the, the stone of stumbling with the rejected stone that becomes the cornerstone. Paul does the same thing in Romans 9. Peter also connects these stones in 1 Peter 2. Because the scandalon that scandalizes people, that scandalizes the whole world, is the scandalous grace of God in Jesus Christ. His grace is scandalous. Do you hate God right now? I'm going to tell you something. If you don't love him with your whole heart, you hate him. Because there is no in between. But if you hate him, look at the cross. Because through his son, God is reconciling the world to himself. And you and I today, we will either reject the stone and be crushed by that stone or we can build our life upon the stone by surrendering ourselves to the stone. There is no in-between with Jesus. We see this in the gospel. People are either like, like the people in Nazareth who want to stone him and kill him, where that hatred is so deep in their hearts, or they're like the prostitute, or the Roman centurion, or the blind man, or the demoniac, where they just fall their whole life at Jesus' feet. We're either going to love him or we're going to hate him. We're either going to fall at his feet and worship him or we're going to kill him. We're either going to lose everything like his disciples or we're going to take offense at him. The real Jesus always provokes one of these two responses. Because he's not Mr. Rogers. He is the scandal on, the rock that causes offense. What are you holding on to today? What are you insisting right now is yours? Are you angry? Are you depressed? Are you bitter right now? Are you wallowing in self-pity? Don't you see that maybe underneath that depression about how your life is going right now is, is your anger that someone else is in charge? And that your bitterness and that your self-pity is nothing more than your insistence on being an owner instead of a tenant? And don't you see the God of the universe who made all things that in his mercy, he's, he's saying to us right now, just get out of the front seat of the car. You're just a five-year-old kid. You can't drive this SUV. Get out. Let me be in control. Listen, he's not a mean boss. He is a loving father. And he wants to move into your life right now and he wants to make your life a garden so you can be a garden to the world. And he does it by making himself vulnerable. God sent his son. What's it going to be? The table is set.
Let's not do this flippantly. Let's not stumble. Either hate him or fall at his feet and love him and worship him. Let's pray. God, I just pray your Holy Spirit would take these words and push them into our heart and into our life in a way that each person, starting with myself, needs to hear them and appropriate them. I just thank you, Jesus, that you're not Mr. Rogers. I thank you that you are this rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. And that you crush. And we can either be crushed by you or we can build our life on you. Give us the grace today to see your grand, scandalous grace. And God, I just pray we could respond appropriately to who you are.